Good morning, Woodland Hills. Morning. How y'all doing this morning? How y'all doing on there on the podcast? Are you going okay where you're at? All right, all right. It's really good to be together here. I, it just occurred to me that last week, Paige forgot to take up the offering. And then when I took up the offering, I forgot that we don't take up offerings anymore. We have it in the back. So it's hard to get new, used to this new church thing. It's just everything's so different. It's just... I, I just was getting used to the old way of doing it. Now they have to mix everything up. Well, we're, we have a panel discussion here. Uh, this morning, we've been, uh, for the last four weeks, talking about love. Uh, it's the center of the center. It's the foundation for everything. It's what we're all about. We just sang about it. Uh, if we don't have love, everything else we do is just altogether worthless. So we're going to have a discussion of sorts here. I'll introduce the panel here. We have, uh, to my left, Cedric Baker. Yeah, you know him. And, 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 now you got to clap for everybody, otherwise we'll feel bad. <laughs> this is Ted Lewis. You don't know him. Uh, I've known him for a number of years. Great guy. Give it up for Ted Lewis. Hey. Drove all the way down here from Duluth this morning. And Oshita Moore, thank you for being here. It's so good that you... So uh, I'm going to take off, uh, hog the first question, if you, if you don't mind, uh, because I don't know where else to fit it in our discussions. And so it's kind of out there. But uh, I got an email this last week that uh, was really good. Uh, it is, it, 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 it's, if you're going to object to pacifism, this is the way to do it. This is, I think, the strongest argument. This person says, okay, here, oh, uh, he says, uh, blah, 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 about, uh, his grandfather uh, was part of the Christian resistance movement to the Nazi Socialist Party uh, that was trying, that, that had an attempt to assassinate Hitler. And uh, this person says, and they're writing from Germany, uh, he says his grandfather participated in this assassination, assassination attempt not because he thought killing was uh, sometimes justified. He didn't hold to a just war theory. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he acknowledged that the attempt to kill Hitler was a sin, but not as great a sin as not trying to kill Hitler in order to save millions of lives. So this, this person wants to know, uh, did I, do I think his grandfather was mistaken? Mm. <laughs> Bring it on. We don't hide the tough stuff. <laughs> Bring it. Okay, um, I'll say, first of all, that I, I, I respect this, this position a lot. I, I think this is, uh, who cannot be empathetic with the, the, the logic behind this, this uh, the grandfather? Um, I mean, it just makes a whole lot of sense. This was the mindset of Bonhoeffer, by, for, uh, by the way, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who just said he felt like, yes, it's a sin, and yet he felt like God called him to do it. Um, and um, he went forward on that. So here, here I, I would be tempted to do this. Uh, and let me say this before I even give my answer is that this is the kind of question that we have to, this could become a distraction if, if, we, if we started here. Uh, okay, so it's an interesting question, but it shouldn't affect our commitment to live in love. However you would answer this, you don't have to agree with me on this, but it, 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 we can't let that now begin to uh, lessen our commitment to loving unconditionally and uh, uh, reflecting the, the, the Father's love to all people. So but he, he, here's my response. Several things. One is... It, so I don't know how that still does not violate Jesus' command to love like the Father loves, indiscriminately, like the sun shines, like the rain falls. Uh, there's no off button to this. And, um, and, and, and so it seems to me that it still violates Jesus' teaching about loving your enemies. Um, secondly, I think if you think it through, this does come pretty close to just war thinking. Uh, just war is the, 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 the theory that uh, there are some kind of violence that are justified, and they have rules about this. Don't do it unless it's justified. Although no one ever goes into war without thinking they're justified, so it doesn't accomplish very much. But here you're saying, well, um, 
it, there are, it, it, while it may be sin to try to kill Hitler, it's a lesser sin. So you now you're evaluating kind of the gravity of sin. And you're saying sometimes it's justified when, it, it, when, when it's a lesser sin than not doing it. So it, it, I think it still is, is, is along the lines of just worth theory. Third, if you carry this out consistently, if, if killing one to save a million is, makes sense, how about killing one to save 10,000? How about 1,000? How about 100? How about two? See, it, 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 you end up with the same place that just war theory brings you. Um, the other thing is that if you went this route, there'd be a whole lot of leaders that would be just, we'd be justified killing, don't you think? If, 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 if I mean, every decision you make about a budget, whatever, it has implications for people's lives. Uh, and, and whether it's incompetency or, 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 or corruption or whatever, leaders all the time make decisions that cost people their lives. Uh, not, not intentionally, maybe, but so one could be ju- feel justified saying, if we take him out, we'll save these lives. And so we'd have a whole lot of, of uh, leadership assassination going on. The final thing I'd say, I think it's the final thing I'll say, is, is that Paul kind of addresses this. In Romans 12, he tells believers, disciples, to never, re- never return evil w- w- with evil, but always ret- repay evil with good. And so your enemy, uh, whoever your enemy is, if you feed them if they're hungry and you give them something to drink if they're thirsty. Um, and he says, leave all vengeance to God. Four verses later, Paul says, and now, now we're in chapter 13, but in the original there wasn't any, any chapter division. Uh, Paul says that, um, he says, leave all vengeance to God. And then he says that God uses the government, the sword of governments, to exact vengeance, to carry out justice, to, to uh, you know, further the good and, and to punish wrongdoers. So He's saying, leave it to God to do the killing, or God doesn't do the killing, but to use the people. He's always working to try to bring them out as much justice as possible, given that governments are going to be using the sword. But that's precisely the thing he says that we're not to be, not, not to be doing. So we leave it all to God, and we just trust that God will be using other people who don't have convictions against this uh, to, to bring about as much justice and to punish evildoers as much as possible. And here's the last thing I'll say. <laughs> that, was the, that was the penultimate last thing. And then we'll turn, you'll hear from them the rest of the, the, the morning. But that attempt to kill Hitler backfired terribly. Um, prior to the, that bomb going off, they, they planted a bomb and, and, it, and, and it snuck it in and it was under this table where Hitler was having a meeting with top officials. Uh, one person sat down kind of close to Hitler and bumped it and was irritated, so he moved it over to his right. When the bomb went off, the table that was at actually protected Hitler and his secretary. Uh, others got killed, but Hitler was spared. Now, he, at that point, Hitler was thinking, all of his advisors were saying, you have to pull back on this final solution. We are using all these resources to, to uh, uh, have these Jews get on trains and, and take them to the concentration camps. We've got to stop doing that because we're losing the war with, with the Russians on the Russian front and on other fronts. Hitler was going to back off of that until that bomb went off. And he interpreted that to be a message from God telling him that he was, he was in the right on doing this. So he actually increased, intensified. The last year of the war was the most deadly in terms of the concentration camps. He actually doubled down on it. And so more people ended up dying, many more people ended up dying than would have died if that assassination attempt hadn't happened. And my only point is this. You know, things can make a whole lot of sense on one level. Uh, but when you play in the devil's poker, sooner or later you're going to lose. 
And, um, and we just have to keep, keep that in mind. Uh, there's unintended consequences for all that. So that's all I have to say about that. You don't need to agree with that. It's something we're thinking about. Um, it doesn't change at all our commitment to live day to day, however you end up with those kind of conclusions. But um, there's my two cents. All right. First question, Oshida. Yes. How would you define an enemy? How would I define an enemy? Yeah. Well, you know, I think that th this is a question that really matters, right? Because in Matthew 5, we're told that we should love our enemy, right? We're, we're given specific guidance on how to respond nonviolently um, to someone who is our enemy. But I think we have to, we have, when we read that within our context, we don't walk around saying, they are my, my arch enemy, you know, like they're my nemesis. Like we don't walk around thinking about that on like a general, like everyday level. Um, and so for me, that passage, always, I always struggled with it because I was like, well, I don't have any enemies. Like I love, I love people, I'm a Christian, like I don't have any enemies. Um, and so I had to start asking myself, well, what, what is Jesus actually asking me to do in this passage? Um, and what I found is that Jesus is asking me to hold on to the humanity of the people that I'm engaging with um, and to remember that they are beloved and to remember that they are made in the image of God. Um, and whenever I am not doing that, that, when I've lost the capacity to do that, then I am in danger of treating them in ways that as if they are my enemy, forgetting that they're humanity, wanting retributive violence, wanting harm to come to them, um, those kinds of things. And so for me, I define my enemy, and this, this makes it so easy for me to, to know when I have to hit that like enemy love protocol in my mind, is anyone who I lack empathy for. So anyone who is on the other side of my empathy, meaning I look at them and say, oh, I would never do that, or how could you do that, or why would you do that, or you're horrible for doing that. The moment my, my thinking goes there, that's when I've realized, oh, there I've made an enemy of them, and I'm in danger of treating them like an enemy. So then that's when that enemy love protocol from Matthew 5 kicks into gear, and I start asking myself, how do I hold on to their humanity? by accessing empathy for them. And That's that excellent. looks like a bunch of different ways. That's good. Write that one down. Your enemy is the, where your empathy ends. That's an excellent, nice, concise definition. Who do you have trouble empathizing with? All right. Ted, you've been in this uh, restorative justice program or movement, whatever it's called. And I wonder, could you explain to the Woodland Hills people uh, what restorative justice is, how it's different from the kind of ordinary justice, ordinary justice that we have in, in America? Um, yeah, and what that's all about. Well, in, in Matthew 5, we see kind of a conventional view of justice, the eye for an eye, and, and even good for good. You know, if, if, if you invite me over for, for a meal, I'm going to invite you over for a meal. So that's what I call two renderings, rendering evil for evil, rendering good for good, mm -hmm. and, and, then, and then we have this enemy love, which is really rendering good for evil. Restorative justice is, is basically an alternative it's, uh, to a conventional view of justice. It's, it's non-punitive, it's community-based, it's relational. Uh, it often brings harming and harmed people together so they can have deep, heartfelt dialogue and, and talk about what happened, talk about you know, get to that empathy zone uh, and then have a shift into talking about reparations. And, and in a sense, this is returning good for evil because people are, are invited into, it's kind of a vulnerable space, but they, they find new empowerment to be honest. Uh, victims and offenders, in, in my experience of facilitation, when they're, when they're prepared, they build up enough trust to really share deeply from the heart. And out of that uh, comes amazing miracles of, of people 
finding that common humanity with each other, like you talked about. Um, Can you give us a, like an example of that? Yeah, in, in my work with facilitation over the years, it's mostly in the criminal realm. Uh, I can think of a story with a couple young men who ended up burning down a rural church. It, it wasn't intentional arson. They had actually been involved in about 12 burglaries in this rural area looking for metals they could sell again and, and other items to pawn. When they were in this church, they ended up, is at night, they lit candles in order to see what they might want to take. And one of the guys had a, a, a kind of a habit of wrecking things before they left. And some candles were knocked over. They left the building. The wax, you know, dripped and caught on, onto a flammable. And, and uh, they didn't know it, but the church burnt down to the foundation. Wow. They were put in a county jail for a year. And it so happened that the pastor and a team of congregants knew about the restorative program I, I ran and said, we'd really like to be able to sit down with these guys. For, for us, in our, our justice journey has to involve a conversation with these guys. So I did preparation work in the jail with, with the two men, uh, preparation work with a team of eight people in the church. Uh, that was about a six-month journey because people need to build up, prep, you know, build up enough trust to come together. When we finally came together, uh, we set a four-hour uh, time together, and that's a time to talk about what happened and all the impacts. A lot of these people were baptized as, you know, children in, in the church, and, mm. and then to talk about repairs. And about an hour into this meeting, I'm realizing, you know, the, the, the church folk aren't really getting what I think they're wanting. They're, they're not hearing something that's really going to make them feel satisfied. And one of them finally looked at the young man and he said, you know, you, you've told us your story, but we need to make better sense out of this. We, we need you to go deeper. We need you to be more honest. Tell us why you did this, what was going on for you. There was kind of an awkward silence. And then finally, the older of the young men said, well, I came back from Iraq and I had all this money, and I, I kind of blew it on, on drugs, and then I ran out of money, and I got involved with, with the stealing. And I know it's not right, but uh, being in Iraq was really hard. And he told a few stories. One of the churchmen said in response, my nephew came back from Iraq, and he committed suicide. Mm. I, I know a bit about what you've gone through. Instant bridge. Yeah. The other young man started to talk. He said, you know, when I was in high school in this area as a mixed uh, uh, Latinx and Native American in a predominantly white area, I was always the one that had to go to the principal's office. Whenever anything happened, everything fell onto me. And I developed a resentment about that. Mm -hmm. And so that's why he was very honest. He said, that's why I knocked things over. It's just my way of taking things out. When they were done with their story, I'll never forget it, one of the women in the church looked at them and said, you know, this may come as a surprise to you, but every Sunday morning, all of us come together and we say a prayer in which we say, we'll forgive others. We will forgive others. And we forgive you now. We really appreciate your honesty. And the two young men were, were just uh, stunned. They didn't really know what to say. Um, but this is the kind of uh, 
knitting that people can have in a restorative conversation so yeah. that they can end up coexisting in the same society and not, not feel like they can't see each other anymore. It goes into kind of the, the, what Oshita was sharing, uh, developing empathy. You get on the inside of each other's story. You get in touch with your common humanity, and, and then there's restoration. And it's not that they didn't have to do reparations and restitution, right, right. community service. They had, to sh- they had to walk the talk, but they were motivated to walk the talk because they had that profound human encounter. Yes, amen. That's what biblical justice is all about is it setting things to right where people are at odds. Yep. As opposed to just getting an eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Amen. Good. How would that maybe apply to, uh, most of us aren't going to be involved in prison restoration kind of stuff, but how would it apply to our, our, our everyday lives? You know, I, I really like, uh, since, since you're in Matthew with Sermon on the Mount, you jump a few chapters to 18, and that phrase where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. Well, that's two People having a heart-to-heart conversation about a hurt. Or three people when they need more support. So all of us have these moments where we're at odds with people, whether we're responsible or impacted. And if you look at that passage carefully, the verbs are go, listen, agree. It's not about kicking someone out. It's it's about restoring people back into a whole community. And then what does Jesus do? He launches into a talk about forgiveness. So... I, I think that two or three concept means that love means we will find a way to have hard but healing conversation. Mm-hmm. Whatever it takes, even if it needs other people to, to come around or a long preparation time, love finds a courageous way to make justice happen through that heart-to-heart conversation. Great. So you go to someone one-to-one, and if that doesn't work, bring someone else with you. Uh, to, to kind of mediate it. If that doesn't work, you bring it for, before others. But how much pain would be avoided if people just did that? Because what usually happens is you got to beef with somebody, you go tell somebody else about it. Can you know what she did it with me? And then it starts to spread like a disease. And it's mm-hmm. Good word. Cedric, you are like Mr. Systems. You are a systemic thinger. I've, I've gotten to know that about you. Uh, Cedric is uh, assistant to the superintendent of the St. Paul School District. His goal is to uh, look at the systems that are creating these educational inequities between whites and, 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 and people of color, students of color, because uh, Minnesota is, I guess, rated last in that. One of the worst disparities. Yeah, we have the worst disparities. So uh, uh, talk about biting off a, a big job. <laughs> Good luck on that one. <laughs> Pray for this guy. So uh, wh- why do you think, um, what, first of all, what are systems? How would you explain a, a systemic thing? What is a system? And, and why do you think it's so important uh, for us to be aware of them if we're going to be able to love the way Jesus calls us to love? Yeah, so in its basic form of the term system, um, most people, I feel like most people understand it. So it is components, elements working together for a common good. It's a framework working together for a common good. You think about that in your immune system, Components, elements working together to protect you. Uh, the justice, criminal justice system, the school system. So that, in essence, is what it is. So when we, when we say systems, we normally don't notice systems until they're not working properly. Um, that's in your body, that's in social structures. Generally, when they're not working properly or having intended outcomes or we see them and they need to work differently, then all of a sudden our attention is on that system. Um, I'm a little bit of a strange ball, so I like systems. I enjoy, 
Yeah, you would agree <laughs> that I'm weird. Uh, I enjoy uh, systems. Uh, I remember recently when my wife and I were in the airport, you know, instead of just looking at the people, I'm thinking through, this is literally a town in itself. Like everybody working together to ensure that you get from one flight to the other, or to ensure that you get home, or ensure that you get on your flight. And so I'm just looking at everything and the resources that it takes to make it happen, making sure that the time is set, making sure, like all of that, to me, it is a system. Again, component, elements, framework, um, supporting a common goal. So when a system isn't working properly and we are all affected by a system, then that's when the conversation starts. We all have a prequel. We all have had some type of connection with something. And because we are in a fallen world, because we have principalities and powers, as we talk about in Ephesians 6 and 12, we have to keep that in mind. And it actually ties into uh, what the, already the panel's discussion is, which is with this prequel, with, this, with these principalities and evil, that we're all doing something that we may not have done yet for powers. And we have to remember that when we're dealing with people and we're talking about enemy love because they are also a part of a system. You are a part of a system. I am a part of a system. I've been pulled into something. And I feel like we need to remember that because it allows us to have that humanity that you talked about, to show compassion. Um, if I don't necessarily see someone um, that has had run-ins with the criminal justice system or have had race issues, or maybe you are um, a disabled person and there, so, marginalized communities in general, right? It's not just marginalized communities, but speaking of marginalized communities, there are a lot of things that have happened. And so being, under, being able to understand people's stories, being able to understand how people got there, that it wasn't just a flip of the wand and then they did what they did. There's generally a backstory to it. Um, in addition to their choices, systems that are forces, powers um, that are bigger than them or that are separate than them that are potentially influencing some of the decisions that they have made. And so in my ability to remember that, I, I'm able to have compassion for the person. I am able to understand that the person is just like me, potentially making wrong decisions, have a prequel, have a story, potentially been dealing with things that were outside of their control and they got here. So that's, that's kind of what I would say. Why do you think it's hard for a lot of Americans in particular, I think, to, to, to get systemic stuff? It, it, <laughs> and that itself is a result of the system that we're part of. <laughs> Um, you've hit on it sometimes, but uh, in some of your messages, but kind of this individualistic culture, I kind of see me and mine. And I believe that a lot of times when that's kind of our, let me say it this way, because this may be more impactful or helpful for people. Being able to see people as, um, human and that they have hurts and they have had a prequel, that's actually really hard. And our culture, don't, our culture doesn't support us to being able to see people that way. We are a very individualistic. We believe that you did something wrong to get where you got. And we don't think about a lot of the other things that have happened in your past to help you get there. And so that's kind of our culture more so Western culture, but specifically American culture. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's some of the reason yeah. why. Uh, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. 
I don't know how this happened, but somehow it seems in the, in the culture wars that are going on right now, well, I've been accused of being liberal because I talk about systemic stuff. And <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's like the conservatives want to stress the individual and liberals want to stress the systems. And I don't know how that got played out like that. It's like, you, I'm liberal for seeing systemic racism or whatever. But it, 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 it seems like there's got to be a balance there on a social level. I, society has to hold individuals accountable. And so yep. I think that's a valid point. Yep. But we also have to look at the, the systems that have influenced that. And so that's kind of a... But would you agree with this, that for kingdom people, uh, we have to have, you know, society has to hold people accountable and all that. But I take what Paul is saying to us uh, about leaving all vengeance to God, all decisions of righteousness, to, we, we have to err on the side of the system. Uh, and and it, we, God will hold the person accountable ultimately. And so we leave all that to God and just love the person. And so that, that's why, like I said last week, that, that prayer, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I want to assume that of everybody. Like, okay, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, and and that, that evokes compassion rather than judgment. I, I agree. And I think sometimes um, I, I've been guilty of it uh, myself. I'm a lot more harsh when you do something wrong than I am when I do something wrong. <laughs> All of a sudden, I find, I find compassion for myself. Um, but for whatever reason, when you do something wrong, I have a hard time understanding why you did what you did. Right. And so it gets to what you're saying that a lot of times we need to be able to see the systems, um, other forces influencing people. Um, and when you get in this conversation, a lot of people sometimes just completely tune me out and say, hey, people have choice, they have free will. Right. That is true, we all do. And it is also true that there's influences right. to that free will as well. And so when I am able to see that, I feel like I have a better understanding of what that passage is saying. Good, it's good. Anyone else wanna, well, all right. Excellent, excellent. Um, okay, so Ashita, I was, uh, this is probably 10 years ago or so, and I was preaching at this conference, or teaching at this conference, and I was teaching about uh, loving your enemies and how self-sacrificial love is the center of everything, laying down your life for the other, you know, turn the other cheek. And there's a panel there. Um, uh, it was actually associated with a university. And there's a panel there, and um, they responded to my talk. To my surprise, not everybody loved me. <laughs> I, 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 I thought they were just going to like, they're going to love this. Uh, the first respondent was an African-American lady, and um, uh, she came out really strong and said, I don't need another white guy telling me I need to lay down my life for anybody. And I am kind of in a position where, okay, what do I say now? <laughs> I'm the white guy. Um, so it, it, but that kind of got me thinking about how, how differently people from different backgrounds can hear what you're saying. Um, so I guess I'm, I would ask, what are some of the complexities maybe that, that happen when we apply this this?" Enemy-loving, nonviolent, self-sacrificial love uh, to marginalized people, whether it's race or, or gender or whatever. Right. So, because um, I totally understand how that woman responded. Um, because hearing, uh, as a person who lives in a marginalized body, um, hearing I have to lay down my life, um, feels like it's reinforcing um, the, the, the troubles or the, the, the uh, adjustments I've had to make my whole life in order to just survive. So there's a, so for a lot of marginalized people, like for like women or people with disabilities or whatever, there is, a, there is an adjustment that we make as we move through the world 
just to be able to feel safe. Um, and so hearing this teaching can sound like you are denied any sort of dignity or self-awareness or belovedness or sense of, of God made, you're made in God's image. God didn't make a mistake in making you in that body in order to uh, continue. In order to be kingdom, you have to stay in this marginalized space. And also maybe even thinking, okay, if, I, if that means I have to lay my life down, then that must mean that anytime I speak out against these systems or I hold uh, actors of these systems accountable, that I'm somehow not being a kingdom person because I am, you know, I'm not laying down my life. I'm not being passive. I'm not taking, I'm not being a doormat. The thing about peacemaking is not passive. Like I'm not, when we talk about laying down our life, that is not a passive act. That is a deeply courageous act. Um, it's, a, it's a trust in God, the goodness of God. It's a trust in the community that you've built around yourself to say you are made in God's image and we are going to continue loving you and cheering you on and coming alongside you. This is why the two or three aspect of it is so important, especially for marginalized people. Because for me, I've built a support system that, that where I've said, these are my values as a kingdom person. I want to be a peacemaker. I want to choose enemy love, but that is particularly hard for me in my social location. So I need you to pray for me. I need you to encourage me. Um, and I think when I, hear, when I hear you talk about that woman, what I hear her saying is, I don't have that kind of support system or that infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And that makes me feel incredibly vulnerable that I'm just going to continue living in my life in this doormat passive space. But if we can talk about enemy love as not being a doormat, but being a kingdom ambassador, and that you're not doing it alone, you have the spirit and you have us, I think that gives us the, the courage and the empowerment we need to live this countercultural way. That's good. Nice. I agree. I agree. I, I want to, in addition to what uh, Oshita just said, um, I, I believe that is not being a doormat. It is, we need to make sure that we are expressing God's love in that way. I also want to say that when we talk about this and this conversation, a lot of the onus um, ends up dealing with um, those that we are trying to get to see some things differently. Um, our allies at times, specifically on race, but we can go into different concepts with um, other marginalized communities. And what I also want to say for those of us, me, myself, I'm a part of a marginalized community, that we also need to be challenged as well, that the scripture is still the scripture. And that doesn't mean that we get an off only because, and, and, and I've been very, I've been thinking about this a lot and I definitely don't want to come across as I am um, being more stringent on marginalized communities or people of color. What I'm saying is in this conversation that I need to grow, I need to be challenged, I need help as well. And I need people around me, I need supports that allows me to see people differently. Because ultimately what God is really asking for is a change of heart, an attitude change of seeing a, per, a perception, of seeing someone differently. And to do that, it takes work. It, it truly takes work to be able to do that. And so I wanna encourage people that are sometimes feeling like you are a part of a marginalized community. At times in these conversations, I know how it feels to feel validated that specifically at Woodland Hills, like you, you see me, like you understand what's going on. You see how I have to navigate my life and in the middle of that, I also want to make sure that we're challenging everyone in here because 
ultimately my heart needs to be changed to see every one of you differently in the way God does. And that for all of us takes work. There is no pass for that. I don't get to do that just because, I don't get to automatically be able to do that because I'm black or I'm an able-bodied or disabled person or whatever it is, I'm a woman, I'm a man. I still need to be able to put in time to do that and truly live out Matthew 5, 43 through 47. It takes work to do that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, wanna, uh, I, would, I would add to that, that work piece. So maybe, I'm not saying I know exactly what's going through her mind, Greg, to the woman who pushed back on you, but maybe what she was pushing back was an expectation that she would jump to this place of a reconciled relationship with somebody without having to do right. any of that work. And again, like, what does that work look like? And I just want to share um, something from Howard Thurman about what that work looks, looks like for him. So in this book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he has a conversation with a man in India who is like, I have seen how the American church treats black people. How do you continue, you know, being a minister in the American church and how do you continue like building multicultural spaces? Um, and he goes on to talk about his conviction and his love for Jesus and um, how he reads Jesus and how he sees Jesus uh, engaging with and honoring marginalized groups. But then this is kind of where he summarizes like what the work looks like for him. So he puts a huge emphasis on the spirit. And Thurman says, wherever his spirit appears, the spirit of, of, of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the oppressed gather fresh courage, for he has announced the good news that fear, hypocrisy, and hatred, the three hounds of hell that track the trail of the disinherited, need have no dominion over them. So for me, when I'm doing, when I'm doing this enemy love work, particularly cross-culturally, uh, um, it, as a marginalized person, I ask myself, where, how am I in my thinking, that lack of empathy? Am I, am I uh, prone to fear or hypocrisy or hatred? Like, I kind of use that as a filter. And that is, that's the indication of the spirit of like, okay, I'm getting off course mm -hmm. in my commitment to, to enemy love and my commitment to nonviolence. Good. good. The only thing I, I would add to that is that I, I, it, it, that was when I first learned, when I had this objection, that to, for self-sacrificial love to be virtuous, um, it has to be volunta voluntary. You ha and that means you, you have to have some kind of power to lay down. Uh, you know, Christ didn't grab, cling to his equality with God, but he set that aside. And it's virtuous because he could have grabbed that. So it, it, it's a total misuse of, of uh, the, the scripture to uh, use self-sacrificial love to try to keep somebody in subordination. Mm -hmm. or, or sometimes, uh, you know, I have met women who have stayed in abusive relationships because they thought that was virtuous because I'm, I'm called to, you know, lay down my life for my husband. Now he's beating you. <laughs> uh, you know, that's not good for him or you. And so, yeah, it's, you have to have some power in order to, to lay it down. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Uh, Ted, um, uh, you have a thing where, in, in, in your work on restorative justice, where um, you make a big distinction between like uh, the world's concept of vulnerability and a kingdom idea of vulnerability. Um, could you flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, there's, uh, there's two kinds of vulnerability. One would be the vulnerability of just being disempowered. And, and like you say, that if that woman doesn't have a, a communal support system, uh, wh why would anyone want to become more vulnerable in some kind of a engagement? 
In, in restorative justice through dialogue, people actually choose a second kind of vulnerability which involves re-empowerment. It's, it's really strength-based, like what social workers talk about, that people have, have strengths within them that can be called forth, that give them resilience and, and courage to, to be part of hard but healing conversations. And in a Christian context, that strength we know is, is also, you know, flows from the spirit. So there's a paradox here that in that kind of vulnerability, in that kind of weakness, is a deeper strength. And, and we find you know, that language in 1 Corinthians, uh, first couple chapters, um, God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Right, right. God's weakness. And, and so it might look weak, it might look foolish from a worldly perspective, but from a kingdom perspective, there is like, amazing, miraculous synergy going on when someone chooses love, chooses courage, chooses to be present, chooses to not hate, chooses to not be anxious, and to stay in a process that's aiming for resolution and, and reparation, or like what you say, Cedric, just, just understanding someone else's story. This is where uh, shift happens. <laughs> because that... Shift happens. Shift That's happens. Shift with, happens. A, with an F. Hear me right here, folks. Shift happens. Someone's got to get a bumper sticker with that. Yeah. But, uh, but, I, but I love this concept because it's like this, this is how restorative justice grows. It, it grows in the same way that the gospel grows, and it, it has this misconception of being soft yep. in the same way that enemy love can be viewed as soft, but it's not soft at all. When you bring love and justice together... With, with choice and courage, you've got a powerful mix mm -hmm. that, that is really at the, at the center of our good. redemptive story. It's good. We're going to title this panel discussion, When Justice and Love Kiss. How's that? It's, yeah, and that's, that's not a novel idea. It's right out of Psalm 85. It is. <laughs> yeah. I plagiarized it. I was, I was, oh, somebody get credit for that. <laughs> Dang. Um, <laughs> Oh, what was I going to say about that? Um, it, it's, oh, yeah, yeah, it, it goes down to, like Paul says at the cross, which is God becoming vulnerable to us. Like, hey, God, <laughs> laid out his life for us. And the world sees that as foolishness and weakness, but Paul says to us, who are being saved, it should, we should see it as the power and the wisdom of God. Mm -hmm. And well, the work that you're doing and all work that, that is about restoring relationships is, is the work of the cross. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, Oshida, um, uh, okay, we, you can't just choose to do that, right? Like, I, today I'm going to wake up and I'm just going to be this vulnerable person. And I'm just, uh, how, what kind of practices might we put in, you know, have in our life that would form our character to be such that we would be able to be vulnerable in situations that would call for that, to choose love over hatred and over self-protection and the rest? Yeah, so there are a few practices that I do. Um, the first is I say the Lord's Prayer every day, um, sometimes multiple times a day, um, because I want that to be instant for me if ever I'm in a, in a situation where I am offended or in danger because I want to respond nonviolently. I want to disarm the violence of whatever circumstance I'm in. And so I say the Lord's Prayer because it centers me and it reminds me of God's character and reminds me of our calling as kingdom people. Um, so that's just a simple thing that you can do. The other thing I do is um, when I have recognized that I have an enemy, somebody's on the other side of my empathy, um, I, I have some practices and I've shared them from here before 
before where I try my best to humanize them. I try to find pictures of them when they were little. I try to find stories of them or, find, or hear stories of them of you know, times that they did something good or when they've, when, they've, when they've surprised me by their contribution to the world or whatever. Like I try really hard to remember that they, the people are complex. Um, and so like, you know, there may be a person that I deeply disagree with across the board, but when I look and see that they had a really terrible childhood and felt really disconnected and da, da, that gives me a backstory for them. And so sometimes I do that work for, for them. Um, I also, there's an ancient prayer practice called the love, a loving kindness prayer. And it's basically a, a prayer where you acknowledge God's goodness and kindness towards you. And then you just sort of pray it towards other people, like different people in your life. Um, you can look that up as an ancient practice. Um, and I do that sometimes specifically when I know I'm about to go into a hard conversation. Mm. Um, and then the other thing I do, uh, and we've t we talked about this in our panel prep about how um, the woman who was caught in the act of adultery was just this really beautiful picture of enemy love and nonviolence. And I know, Ted, you talked a little bit about that. So can you just share real quickly kind of, you know, how you read that and how, that's, how that pertains to our conversation today? Yeah, the, the story in John 8 and Jesus is teaching in the temple and, and the this woman has marched in with, with the religious leaders. The, the powerful thing there is Jesus is really doing a third way response that, that addresses the system of, of marginalizing her. I mean, where's the man that was caught in adultery? I, I, He's not even can there. I, can, I, you know, uh, can you just tell a little bit? Some folks might not know the story. Uh, so it flesh out, like, the, the, they brought this woman to Jesus and just saw the details of the story. Well, he, he, Jesus, and he, uh, he, he hits three things that in a very simple way. He, he addresses that systemic problem. He addresses those who are on uh, the, the power side by saying, you know, consider your solidarity, your common humanity in, in the realm of sin. And then he dignifies the woman without condemning her, but, but in a sense empowers her to go on in life without being stigmatized. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so... In doing that in a calm, non-anxious way, kind of getting down near the ground and then coming up slowly, it's just a marvel how he can handle all three of those things at once. Right. That's So another practice that I do um, to help me uh, remember to be a, a third way person is I read uh, that John passage with the ancient practice of Lectio Divina. And so together as a congregation, as a community, we're going to practice that um, because in that passage, it does touch on everything that we've talked about. We've talked about the systemic aspect, the interpersonal, individual aspect. We've talked about the disarming and the bringing the humanity in. Um, and so sometimes I come to this passage when I am wrestling through um, loving somebody who's deeply offended me, somebody who is my enemy in that moment. So we're going to go through it. Lectio Divina is a real quick practice. Um, you, well, it can be as long as you want it, but we're going to do it quickly. Um, I'm going to read it three times, and each time I read it, I'm just going to ask a question for you to, to reflect on for a couple of seconds. Um, Lectio Divina is this practice of like staying in a passage and reading it over and over again and kind of just like uh, processing it, meditating it, then going back in, processing it, meditating, going back in. So we're going to do that. Um, I think we'll have some quiet music behind us while we do it. Oh, there we go. I want to encourage you to go ahead and take a couple deep breaths before I read this passage in John 8. And I want you to imagine... First, I want you to imagine yourself 
just as a bystander watching what's going on. So, John 8. Then everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple, all of the people around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and he wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened himself up and said to them, Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one. The older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened himself up and said to her, Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well then, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin again. So for the next moment, reflect on what this passage tells us about the heart of God, the character of God as revealed in Jesus in this anxious, potentially violent moment. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to invite you to imagine yourself as one of the people in this story. Maybe not Jesus, but... (laughs) All right. Then everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him, but he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened himself up and said to them, whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then they bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left one by one, one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened himself up and said to her, Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well then, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin. Now I want you to reflect on the disarming nature of Jesus. When you think back to that moment, reflect on the disarming nature of that bending down, of the writing, of the humanizing, every person in that space. And now this last time as I read it, I want you to ask the Spirit, what does it look like for you to be a disarming person, to be a peacemaker who chooses love and humanity, who resists the temptation to be anxious, to give in to violence, and to judge? 
Our last time reading is inviting the Spirit to teach us uh, what does this look like in our lives. So here we go. Then everyone went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered round him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commands that such a woman be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so they could accuse him, but he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened himself up and said to them, whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened himself up and said to her, where are they now? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir, she answered. Well then, Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin. I invite you to take a couple of deep breaths with me. Breathe in. Breathe out. And breathe in again. Lord, empower us to be lovers of our enemies, kingdom ambassadors for your peace, disarming and gracious, nonviolent and loving, gentle and not judging. Amen and amen. 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 All right. Thank you for that. Uh, let's give it up for the panel here. You guys did a great job. That's fantastic. We've got the baptism at 1 o'clock at Lake Phelan. We've got the prayer uh, uh, is available for you if you're in the house or prayer's available if you're in the outhouse. I know. Uh, I, you get online. <laughs> I know where that came from. Uh, get online and, uh, and we, uh, don't, don't carry that burden alone. Uh, they'd love to pray with you. And also uh, we've got the, the, the Muse cast at 4 o'clock on Tuesdays and the gathering groups that we're encouraging people to be involved in. All right. Go forth and love your enemies. Swear off all violence and be a conduit of God's love and blessing in this world. Amen. God bless you guys.